So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Hey Rebels, welcome back. Yeah, welcome back. This week's episode might be my favourite. I think think it's my favourite. I think when we recorded it, coming off the back of it, I was like, that was amazing. So interesting. Like one of the most interesting conversations I think I've ever had. Yeah, it was great. Really, really, I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this episode and just to discover Kate and her amazing work. As usual, a lot of uh, DMs this week and our email address, if you would like to email us, is connect at rebelscreate.com, which is the website where you can also find our weekly blog. Um, But yeah, a lot of inquiries from people this week, um, questions and people asking for advice. And um, someone reached out and was asking about networking. Which I think links nicely to this week's show as well. So I think that's a good good topic to discuss. It does, yeah. They were basically, I guess, an introvert. And the last thing in the world they want to do is go networking, yeah. which I totally get. And for me, like a lot of the events I go to, they, they start at six, they end at nine. We start at 10 and we end at six. So it's literally rolling straight from work into an event. Yeah. And then three hours of like your, your work day is basically extended. Yeah. And sometimes I look at those and go, can I, can I be bothered to go yeah. to this thing? I think for me, like I, like the idea of going to a networking event is scary and horrible. And I've never felt like networking in a group is easy for me. I always find networking one-on-one like a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, it's cause it's funny, isn't it? Cause I'm, I'm the same. I would say I'm, I mean, I'm an introvert, definitely an introvert. Yeah, and, but we stand on stage and we, do presentations yeah. like quite quite often and we're absolutely fine doing that it's yeah. funny how you can just kind of flip the switch yeah I remember one of my tutors at uni like one thing he said always stuck with me about being an introvert because he, he was like I'm a massive introvert I'm, I'm now teaching a class of people which inside I'm like ah but he was like I've had to teach myself how to pretend to be an extrovert like how to act like an extrovert to get by yeah one of the things that I read that was really really useful to me was that introverts are powered up like so you've got your your battery and if you're an introvert your battery is powered up by spending time on your own Mm -hmm. and if you're an extrovert it's powered up by being with other people yeah so i will be on my own power myself up go to the event and then and then i can come home and and be on my own and everything can be fine again and i can recharge my battery what do you do to psych yourself up to get before going to one of those events because for me it's a very intimidating scary thing um, I, I mean, I've done it a lot more than you, so I guess yeah. I'm just used to it now. I don't, um, I mean, I get super nervous before I go on stage, but mm-hmm. I'm like, I, it's just, it's such a familiar feeling now. Yeah, like, I suppose it's, uh, yeah, I suppose I understand in terms of like when I first started doing portrait photography, those first couple of meetups with people that I didn't know, I was fucking shitting it. Like it was yeah. really nervous, but now it's completely fine. I've done enough that you realize that actually there is, it's no no reason to be scared it's fine everyone else is nice enough and yeah i mean confidence comes from 
successfully doing something over and over yeah. again, doesn't it? So that's you've become confident because you've just done it so yeah. many times now that it's just it's the same with the podcast. Our first few episodes we were super nervous about yeah. sitting down and interviewing people. And I mean it's still a work in progress and we're yeah. still learning, but like we're definitely much more confident now. Oh absolutely. Even these intros, like yeah. these intros didn't really exist. Yeah. Because the first few episodes, we were just like, here's a guest, go. <laughs> Let them sort out, it's fine. Yeah. But now we, I guess, I guess it's just because people re- are reaching out and we can, we can deal with specific questions. Yeah. Which we're not doing currently. So let's get back to it. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, networking. How do you network as um, an introvert? So I have a technique. This is my super secret technique of that I use for networking. And I've never spoken about this before. So interesting. And I hope this doesn't like catch on and become a thing because then everyone will be sick of it. But what I do is I go up to groups because it's so hard when you when you go to one of those things and everyone's like grouped off into yeah. little areas and you go, Oh, they're having conversation. It would be rude if I went and, and butted into them. Well, I just go and butt into them and I go, Hi, can I network with you? And like one hundred percent of the times that I've done it, yeah. it gets a laugh. Like they're like, what? and then they just go, yeah, because that's why we're here. You're there yeah. to network. So I just walk up. I say, hi, guys, can I network with you? Um, because it's just stupid. Like the whole situation is a really weird situation yeah. anyway. So I'm just like, yeah, can I network with you? So that's my top tip. Just do that. Just walk up to different groups. Yeah. Yeah. I think just going for it sometimes is like so important. Like when we were doing a, a job recently with gigs and gigs, the rapper, not the football player. And, um, I was like, Oh, should I go and ask him for a portrait? I was like, no, he's talking to someone. uh," And just, I was convincing myself it's a stupid idea and not to do it. And I just thought, fuck it. I'm just going to go and do it. Went over. Can I take a portrait? He said, yes. And yeah, and I got a great photo, but it was all because I just took that little, that little leap just to say, Oh, just fuck it. Like what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. There's, um, uh, I guess motivational speaker. I don't know what you want to call her, but, um, someone called Mel Robbins who Mm. I've listened to some of her content and she talks about the five second rule. Um, because you're apparently after five seconds, your brain starts kicking in because it wants to keep you safe and anything unfamiliar to your brain. It doesn't know that it's just walking up to people to talk. Mm. It thinks that you could be putting yourself in like a life threatening situation. So after five seconds of, worrying about something your brain kind of tells you okay don't do it yeah it's because your brain has kept you alive up until this point so why change anything Mm -hmm. so as soon as you go to do something new it flows up um warning signs because it knows that this path has kept you alive so why why switch to something else so um she talks about basically doing a backwards count five four three two one and then you just do it Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that's really good advice because if you if you stand there and think about it for too long, you're just going to tell yourself that these people are not going to like me and they're not yeah. going to want to talk to me. So just five, four, three, two, one. Hi, yeah. can I network with you? That reminds me of being, uh, being on like a cliff edge when I was traveling and everyone's jumping off and I'm really scared of heights. So instead of walking up to the edge and looking over slowly, I just stood back and just ran at it and just jumped. Yeah, And it was amazing. And there was no fear there at all because you just, I just absolutely went for it. Yeah. And it's great. I, I guess it's it's find out what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because may like I when I do the can I network with you, I've got a smile on my face and being quite jokey. Maybe that's not your style. It's it's working out what your style is. Yeah. Um, and I think getting out of the of the whole just 
boring patterned of hi who are you what do you do yeah um and it's like even if you are an introvert i think you can go into these situations and you can get you can get so much from it not only work contacts but you can actually meet mates at these things mm-hmm. um you've done a lot of your networking i guess through instagram yeah. rather than like an in-person in-place meeting yeah. um and and that's worked really well for you. So you don't even bother going to networking events because you just use Instagram as the room that, yeah. you, that you meet. Yeah, and I think in. what's nice about that is I've got my pick of who's in the room. Instead of going to a room where you've no idea who the people are in there, I can you can hand pick who your friends are and who you want to work with and who you want to hang around, basically, which I think is what's great about social media is the fact that you you can handpick who you want to be with. As Jim Rohn says, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I completely agree with that. I think if you analyse who your friends are and who you do spend most time with, look at what they're doing in their careers, how happy they are in every single aspect of life, and you realise you are a pretty much an average of those five people. And you can transform that five simply by having an Instagram account. Yeah, and I think, well, you can transform who you are by simply changing your five people i think if you want to be a journalist writing a book and and selling a million copies surround yourself with people who are doing similar things if you want to be a designer no one in your circle of five currently is a designer or in a creative field find more people like that who you can hang around because you're going to slowly grow into that like that's what i've done over the past like year or so i've found people i find interesting inspirational people who I want to get to know a a bit more like my kind of close circle of friends all working kind of corporate jobs they're not particularly happy in what they do so I've started to try and find people who are more happy in what they do like myself to kind of help grow that and grow that persona around myself yeah and so that's gone from networking contacts to actual physical real life friends I think a lot of people go to networking events to try and get something out of other people they go on for kind of selfish reasons of well, if I go there and meet this person, I can get this job through them. Whereas if you went to one of those events thinking, I'm going to go and make some friends who could potentially be in my circle of five, then that's a really different way to approach it and a lot more beneficial long-term. Because if you can make friends at an event, then that's even better. Yes, so that segues beautifully into speaking about this week's guest, Kate Lever, who is an author, journalist and a friendship expert. Before she moved over here to the UK from Australia, she wrote for free for the UK Huffington Post, which allowed her to build up a portfolio of articles and she leveraged that to find paid work over here uh, when it came time to emigrate. Kate's book, The Friendship Cure, explores many types of friendships um, and they're they're types of friendships, quite honestly, that I didn't really know a lot of them existed or I hadn't considered or thought about them at all. So... um, I think, as we said at the beginning, I think this is one of the best episodes that we've done, so I yeah, think people are going to love it. In this episode, we talk about the problem with Monica and Chandler, working for free, and toxic friendships. I think we all hold on to bad friends, toxic friends, mm-hmm. friends who are no good for us, yeah. out of fear of social rejection and being alone, out of complacency, out of laziness. And I think we should be surrounding ourselves with the people who lift us up and make us want to be the best yeah. versions of ourselves. Hi, we're here with uh, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. 
How are you? Um, we're good. We're good. Yeah, really um, good. So you have written a book. No, that's not the first thing I want to ask you. Let's start off by asking you, why are you obsessed with Danny Dyer? <laughs> Which one? Senior or junior? Oh, you tell us. Well, you see, I think I'm a little bit these days more obsessed with Mr. Danny Dyer because I think, I mean, I read a profile of him yesterday by Alice Jones that was saying that he went through this dark phase where people where he was taking a lot of drugs, yeah. but also people sort of made fun of him and he wasn't taken very seriously. And now it's kind of like the Danny Dyer renaissance. Oh, and he's absolutely... Com- our household yeah. is a Danny Dyer household, so I feel like we're going to have a good Danny Dyer chat right well, now. Well, I think I, think I might have... Because I've been in the UK for nearly four years now. Mm. So I think I've kind of arrived at the right time for the Dyer yeah, renaissance yeah. because I've just gone straight into believing that he is truly a national treasure and I've skipped all of the mockery and all of the not taking him seriously. And I... I actually come from two generations of soap opera stars Amazing. so I even respect his day job so, so are we know. going Neighbours Home and Away or uh, been- not quite a little bit before Neighbours and Home and Away my grandma and my mum were on something called Sons and Doctors Sons and Daughters and Young Doctors oh. um, I've actually seen episodes of that in my, in my youth yeah amazing yeah it's um it's a very dramatic bloodline. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. Speaking of dramatic bloodlines, do you know about Danny Dyer's dramatic bloodline? Yeah, I watched his history documentaries, yeah. which I just want him to narrate all of history. But yeah, I thought they were fantastic. And of course, he's related to royalty. There's You couldn't write fiction better than that. I think it's wonderful. Do you, do you know about this stuff? Oh, literally only because I follow Kate on Twitter and really? she's been posting <laughs> clips of it every day. So I've just been watching these clips oh God, of so Danny good. Dyer in history and like with a ukulele, not a ukulele, with a, with like a... Oh, a, a lute or a no, lute. something. Yes. Yeah. Lute. So something oh, of that era. Yeah. Because yeah, he was on... Um, who do you think you are? Like, I think it's like yeah, a year ago. I still haven't seen that. Oh, I'm so it's, excited it's about brilliant. it. And it kind of goes through his heritage and like talk about his family and like his East End kind of connections. And then towards at the end, he sits down in this church with this guy and rolls this scroll. And he's like, oh, I've got, I've done a family tree for you. And he unrolls it. And it goes back to him being related to... Thomas Cromwell and someone even... So William the Conqueror, he goes back to. Yeah, yeah. Like, actually in his bloodline. And I can't remember, I think it was... I don't know if it was Edward III or someone like like that. And it's like, the look on his face when he (laughs) realises that he's a descendant of royalty is just gold. And off the back of that, he's now got this new TV show going through history, going even further back into that. And it's just mental. He dresses up in armour and he learns all sorts of different things about all these different ancestors and he eats medieval food and oh it's just it's perfection so good he ingratiated himself to me when uh he called boris johnson a twat oh yeah me too with uh david cameron and his trotters yeah yeah, up in nice i really enjoyed that i mean he made the most sense of anyone who's spoken about the mess we're in right now with yeah. Brexit. I think he just says it like it is, isn't it? And I think yeah. people appreciate that. Yeah, you've got to. Yeah, plus no one else was really holding those people to account in quite the same way in mm. a popular culture kind of scenario. No, I really love that. National treasure, I promise you. Yeah. Sir, Sir Danny Dyer, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how was it growing up with a mum in a soap opera? Were you like on the set a lot? No, so she was pretty much, she was, she stopped acting to give birth to me. So it was all before my lifetime. During shoot? 
No, no, no. She just. She so kind you didn't of, get written into a storyline. No, line. I didn't. So sadly, she told me actually recently she was offered the, like the role of a lifetime, like a career-defining role. But it was when I was two weeks old, so she turned it down, and it, that oh. made me feel quite guilty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was her goal in telling you that? I don't know. I don't know. She was like, I would do it all again. I, I made the right decision. Like it's you know my child over my career, and I was like, okay, mom. <laughs> um, Thanks, mom. Good to know. <laughs> but yeah, so the soap opera days were all before me but believe me if you met my mom or my now late grandma you'd be able to pick up on something a little soap opera you know those like especially in the 80s they had like a special soap opera accent in australia particularly i think actors sort of did this slightly british sounding thing where they enunciate properly and it's like i'm on television and i shall act and it's just like this fantastic melodramatic thing yeah i'm really really into it (laughs) (laughs) and apparently i wouldn't go to sleep as a baby until i'd heard the opening credits to home and away at 7 p.m so it's in my blood that's cute Mm. i was very sweet (laughs) (laughs) what went wrong (laughs) (laughs) so so we're not here to bully you (laughs) good in terms of your career now, we've obviously had your friend Emma Gannon on the yeah, on the show because I, um, I I discovered your work through reading Emma's book and then hearing you in the book. And oh, I was like, yeah. that sounds like an interesting person. So I I googled you and found your Twitter and stuff like that. So, but yeah, you are kind of doing exactly what Emma talks about in her book in mm. being a multi hyphenate. So. You were in Australia, you were working the nine to five. Yeah. Or the 6am to 11pm as it happened to be. But yeah. Yeah. It was a bit kind of full on for you over there. Actually, while I think of it, what, why do you think there is this kind of view of, of a lot of writers like not being taken seriously, like not being paid on time? Yeah. Oh, it's bizarre. I mean, I'm currently chasing invoices from May last year at the moment. It's absolutely mad. And, you know, some of the people that I've written for are people who will publish articles about how it's empowering for women to talk about money in a sensible way. And then, then, you know, behind closed doors, not paying the women who write for them. I don't know where the attitude comes from that writing isn't work that is worthy of prompt or fair payment. Mm -hmm. I suppose because technically we could all string together a sentence in written form perhaps it's kind of this idea that like anyone could do it and there's not really enough appreciation for the skill that it takes to do it well perhaps people are just still this kind of cheap belief that exposure is a form of payment I mean I still get people requesting that I do events or speeches or chair panels for free and that is also work so I'm not quite sure how that comes about you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about it, but then I've also got to spend time chasing invoices, so I don't think about it too much. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely a huge problem. It's something we've talked about with, with quite a few guests is the dilemma of, of working for free. Mm. And I think the, the kind of consensus that we've come to on it is that if it's exploitative, then it's not for you. But if you can exploit it for yourself... Yeah, absolutely. Then that's, so if yeah. it's a panel where people are going to be hearing about your writing and they're going to be looking you up and then maybe it's a panel worth being on. Mm. But if it's something where you're literally there to tick their boxes and they're getting everything and you're getting nothing, then it's not a fair 
exchange of value. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, if you're happy to do something for your own purposes and it happens to be unpaid, fantastic, go for your life. Mm. I just think, that especially if someone is charging money for the tickets to come to that event yeah. and then the speakers are on for free, it's all a bit dodgy. Um, and I'd like to see a bit of a shift in the way we think about reimbursing people for their time. Uh, but absolutely. I mean, I used to write for the Huffington Post quite a lot when I was back home and they don't pay their writers. And that was fine for me because I was still trying to build a brand and a presence online. Yeah. And that was great because also I knew I was going to move to London. So I was writing from HuffPo UK and it was strategic for me to be able to do that. So I was mm -hmm. getting something out of it too. So it was a fair exchange. And how... How useful is an article on the Huffington Post? Would it be that if I was thinking about launching myself as a writer, I want like one post on Huffington is not going to be good enough. It, you would need to build up a significant kind of body of work. A little there, bit, yeah. Right? I mean, for me, it was about having my work on a global brand's website. It was also to please my dad. My dad thinks the Huffington Post is like what all the cool young people read. He thinks it's the internet. He was like, sweetheart, if you can get on the Huffington Post, you will have made it. <laughs> oh, so I think, him. you know, the fact that I can direct him, if he knows how to get, you know, use a hyperlink, the fact that I can show him that my work is there, he thinks that I've hit, you know, hit, hit the peak of my yeah. career. Yeah. So, well, a little bit, it helps for me to then be able to say when I get to London, I'm Kate Lever, I'm a journalist, here mm -hmm. is some of my work from the Huffington Post. And a lot of people don't know that that's not paid work. They just see it as a big global yeah. brand and they go, oh, fancy, fantastic, click. And it allows me to have a bit of a portfolio. And I'd written enough stuff that there was a Kate Lever page with all my articles on it. So I could just direct people there. Mm -hmm. And it's so helpful to be able to give out samples of your writing. So that was, that was, it was good for me. Yeah. And you write quite often about the internet and you're a fan of and a defender of the internet. I am a fan of and defender of the internet. Yes, I, I wrote a chapter about the internet in my book and I liken the World Wide Web to Lindsay Lohan in that I think Amazing. has a very bad reputation but is actually better and more talented than we all expect. I think the internet has a wonderful capacity to connect people, to have its own kind of environment where people can share ideas. I think it's this wonderful place and particularly because I've been preoccupied with the topic of friendship because that's what my book is about. I have been looking at the ways it connects people who might not be able to leave the house, for instance, because of disability, mm. because of agoraphobia, because of mental illness, because of just crippling shyness or, or, you know, sort of the type of loneliness that tells you you don't deserve to have friendship. So I, I th I'm quite in love with the internet. I mean, I know it can be a nasty place. I'm a woman who has public opinions. I know what the internet can be like. Yeah. You can get trolled. There can be hate speech and it can be a really nasty place where all of the worst of humanity comes to the front. You've experienced that personally. Yeah, well, I think any woman who talks about what they believe on the internet really? has probably received some kind of nasty feedback. It's so scary that that's... it's. I'm surprised by that because, I, because I'm a man on yeah, the internet and I've yeah. never had anyone tweet anything negative at me ever. How lovely. <laughs> <laughs> how fucking frustrating. Yeah, it's difficult. And it is, it is quite shocking how quickly things get sexual and dark. 
And that's a real problem. And I think particularly platforms like Twitter need to step up their game in protecting people from that kind of thing. Mm. And it is a conversation we need to have about the price of free speech and when it's more important for free speech to be censored if it's hate speech, essentially. Mm. So there's definitely huge, huge problems with the internet. But I am, as a millennial and someone who uses the internet for their career and their livelihood, as most of us do, yeah, a pretty staunch defender of it as it happens. Yeah, I, I wonder why that is, whether it's the the anonymity of hiding behind the keyboard or what it is. I, I think the only thing I've experienced recently is through this podcast blowing up, which has been crazy. Amazing. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> Is that so? We've been putting out quite a lot of content and we've been blogging, and I've been putting out some ideas that I'm sort of quite passionate about. Things like I don't believe there's any such thing as natural talent. Mm -hmm. I don't think natural talent exists. I think that you, I think you work hard and you cultivate a talent. I don't think anyone's born with a magical gift. But you put that out and people read the headline and then. They make yeah, a comment yeah. and yeah. the comment is normally something that I've addressed in the blog because I knew it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. my answer is always, have you read the blog? And it has all been men so far, actually, yeah, come to think of it. that doesn't surprise me. And I write, did you read the blog, question mark? And then I just don't hear anything back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, welcome to my life. As a writer, we will submit our articles and then a headline that we did not write is put on it. Uh, and often, of course, it's motivated by getting to people to click on it, not necessarily being an accurate or nuanced summary of what the article is about. Mm. And you always address the things that people are going to, you think people are going to be pissed off about. So you always have disclaimers in there and try and be nuanced, but people don't read it. They just react as soon as they see the yeah. headline. So yeah, I really feel you on that one. It's difficult. Because there's separate teams that will write that their job is to just write headlines, right? Uh, Yeah, in a lot of places. Or you'll get, I mean... I guess that is a skill in a way. Yeah, it is a skill. It really is. And a lot of places it'll be, it might be the sub-editor, it might be the editor. Or, yeah, certainly in more digital companies, there are people who deal with just... And headline testing, of course, you can do um, where you put like an A-B testing thing where you test on social media with which headline is getting clicked on the most and then you replace so some people people will see different headlines and you can see which is the most popular and go with that so it is a science and it is very interesting i find interesting because i remember putting some big headlines on some pieces that probably didn't deserve it when i was an editor (laughs) but it's successful you know you've got to get people to read the content and they're not going to read it if it's that's what i was going to say so how how do you as a writer how do you feel that Obviously, those those clickbait headlines are not what you're what you mean mm. or think, but it's getting more people to read your work. So, how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Well, as a as a freelance writer, I feel like I'm on the other side of the fence now because when I was an editor on a website, I was absolutely fine with putting headlines on people's articles that probably ne- didn't perfectly express what they yeah. wanted to get across. But now I'm a freelancer. I'm kind of shaking my fist in the direction of the publication I'm writing for being <laughs> like, how dare you? Um, so I feel kind of righteously incensed when that happens to me now. But, it, you know, I guess because I've worked on the other side, I do understand why it happens. And I understand that, of course, you've got to get eyeballs on pieces. Otherwise, kind yeah. of what's the point? So it's clicks of money as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think most people, as we've seen so many layoffs in journalism recently that have been devastating, I think the digital media business model is kind of broken and they do need to get as many clicks for advertising purposes as they possibly can in order to survive. So I I get it. And people are under all sorts of pressure to reach certain KPIs and certain number of reads and unique visitors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it is huge when you're in the, in the middle of it. And a lot of people have been laid off at BuzzFeed recently. Yeah, at BuzzFeed, a huge amount. I think it was 17 out of 37 employees in the UK office and then many, many more in America, but also in Brazil, all sorts of places. Huge in Australia, um, where I'm from, a lot of the team. I mean, I've been watching them announce their redundancies on Twitter and it's really the people who set the tone for that website who've been let go so I'm not really sure what is going to be left. I think it's a really devastating thing and of course we had the closure or the going into administration of the pool, the women's website last week as well which has also been a devastating loss for the women's media space which I think is really important Um, I wrote for them, I think they're a fantastic team but unfortunately just really badly managed particularly financially so it's a really sad and there were layoffs at Huffington Post and run by Verizon as well. So it's been a bit of a bloodbath recently in journalism. Yeah, so um Shortlist magazine's gone as well. Yeah, now. of course, yeah. And so just left with the stylist magazine now, which is I can understand why. Like I don't think men really read as much as women in terms of magazines, mm. like physical magazines. And I think stylists going down a very good route at the moment with just a whole lifestyle around that as well. Yeah, yeah, it is good. Yeah. So would that be they're not getting enough views, so therefore they can't charge as much for advertising revenue? Is that... I'm not... With BuzzFeed, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not entirely sure. It seemed to be kind of a streamlining move where they just wanted to increase the profit margin and therefore get rid of human beings. But they got rid of some really good ones. So I'm not sure quite what the thinking there was. Mm, Where the content's going to come from if you... Well, exactly. We're talking about getting rid of like entire news teams and entire national desks and most of the people who do the buzz section, which is where all the clicks come from. Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure what is going to happen next. Maybe they're kind of going the route of those big and like traditional, bigger traditional newspapers where they know that like the Huffington Post, they don't have to pay people for an article now and they can just get maybe they'll start getting more from an outsource like more freelance work in and Possibly. just hopefully because people now will be like oh I've got an article on BuzzFeed whereas there used to be the Huffington Post for example yeah possibly I mean I think we're in, living in pretty interesting times for digital media and it remains to be seen what will happen next mm. I'm kind of wary and curious and a little bit alarmed about it all why did you decide to write your book Great question. So I can pinpoint the exact moment. I was sitting in Hyde Park on a strangely sunny day for London. I think it was kind of near the end of 2015. And I'd just moved to London a few months before that. And I was, I had in my head that I wanted to write a book in the back of my head, but I was reading this article on the Atlantic by a journalist called Julie Beck. And it was some headline, something to the effect of how our friendships change as we age. And in it, she argued that essentially when we get married, have kids and get preoccupied with our career success, friendship is the first thing to go Mm -hmm. because we're biologically obliged to love our family and legally bound to our spouse. So friendship is kind of the most tenuous of relationships 
relationships and therefore the, the first to go when life gets tough or busy. And I, having just moved 16,000 kilometers away from home and my traditional support network, I was hyper aware of how important my friendships were to me, even if that was mainly communicated via the dancing lady emoji in WhatsApp groups. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I kind of was really alarmed by this idea that we might get into the serious stuff of life with family and children and stuff and just forget about our friends. And I had friends who were around childbearing age and I kind of, I was just frightened by this idea yeah. and it basically prompted me to go into a year long binge of research. And the more research I did, the more alarmed and comforted I was because I would find this harrowing statistic or story about loneliness and the loneliness epidemic in which we live. But then it, Equally and slightly more cheerfully, I would find some fantastic science, scientific fact about how great friendship is for our physical and mental health and well-being. So I just kind of ended up in this space where I was desperate for people to take friendship seriously mm -hmm. for their own sake and for the sake of the world and each other and humanity and all that sort of stuff. And that's why I ended up calling the book The Friendship Cure, because I do believe that we can solve loneliness with a kind of aggressive revival of kindness and empathy mm -hmm. and the things that defend that define friendship. So that's where the book came from in the first place. Did you know what you were getting into? In terms of writing terms a book? In terms of the research, yeah. Uh, uh, well, look, I usually write articles that are about a 1,000 words. So it ended up being 83,339, I believe, which, let me tell you, is a lot of words. <laughs> so that was, yeah, I, I didn't quite understand what I was getting into when I started the process of publishing a book because it's huge. And in terms of research, I just really enjoyed it because usually the turnaround time is quite tight with a feature article and you only got to sort of get enough time to chat to a couple of experts, a couple of case studies and bring it all together in time for your deadline. And particularly when I was working, you know, in-house at a digital media company, it would be a luxury to get an hour and a half to write a feature article. Mm. So the idea that I might have... In the end, it was about eight months that I had to research and write the book. The idea that I would have all that time stretching ahead of me was both daunting and wonderful. It was like this indulgent thing for me as a journalist where, you know, one of my professional traits that I have to have is curiosity or ideally have. And so I just, I just really enjoyed the process of research. Plus, I love an expert. You know, I know there's a lot of studies out there saying we've lost faith in experts and we prefer people who lie to us and spread propaganda. <laughs> but I just love speaking to people who know their stuff. So that was a delight. And I, I, I found some really good ones. That was one thing I loved about the book was that it's very chatty and conversational and light and funny. Thank you. But it's backed up with actual real science. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's the perfect summary of how, what I wanted it to be. I always want my my the best feedback that people in my life have ever given me about my writing is that they can hear my voice talking to them when they read it. Because I want my writing to be clear and chatty and conversational. So that's delightful. That's what you think. But yeah, also I wanted to get into some really good science because there's mm. some great science on this on this subject. And you wouldn't expect it necessarily on the topic of friendship, but there's some great stuff out there. Yeah, it's a topic that I knew, I realised through reading your book that I just really knew nothing about. Mm. And it's not something that I'd ever looked into or your friends are just your friends and I didn't really ever think that deeply about yeah. it. We're just these 
humans that found each other and oh you'll do yeah you, you can <laughs> exactly. stick around you can Let's stay hang out sometimes yeah and then some of them they just disappear and they're gone and you don't really ever see them again and yeah. this strange sort of shifting sands of relationships is it's such a fascinating topic. It and is. I'm so glad that I discovered the book because oh, now you. I can think about it on so many more levels and thinking on it on a neurochemistry level and, and us yeah. being monkeys. And oh, it's so good. I love the monkey stuff. Talk about the monkey stuff. The monkey stuff. The monkey stuff comes from an evolutionary psychologist called Robin Dunbar. And I like to think we may sort of be buddies now because we oh. keep... Yeah, you got to meet him, didn't We you? keep getting... Yeah, well, I met him for the book, but we keep getting asked to go on the same panels and events because we both write about friendship. Yeah. So he basically, if you're looking into the academic side of friendship, you will come up against his name. My favorite thing... Thing that he did. He basically, yeah, he used to look at chimps and he worked out this thing where he looked at a particular part of the brain and he worked out that he could do some very fancy maths and correlate the size of a part of a chimp's brain with the size of their social network. So with all their chimp friends. So he could work awesome. out how many friends a chimp would have based on the size of this part of the yeah. brain. And then he sort of tired of talking about chimps all the time and thought to himself, what if I applied the same fancy maths to humanity? Maybe I could work out if there's a number of how many friends human beings have the mental capacity to maintain. Yeah. And he did precisely that. It's 150 or sort of give or take 100 to 200, depending on how extroverted mm -hmm. or introverted you are. And he sort of very modestly called that Dunbar's number, so named it after himself. Although he alleges that Facebook actually called it Dunbar's number and it wasn't him, but I sneakily suspect <laughs> it was him. Uh, but, you know, why not? If you've done this amazing research, name it after yourself. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, there's this just fascinating. So he looked at the size. I think it's the neocortex, if I'm remembering correctly. The size of the neocortex can determine how many friends we should have. And 150 is this spooky number that comes up all the time. It's the size of the, the last remaining hunter-gatherer tribes around the world. It's the size of the, like, the smallest self-contained military unit. It's now becoming the size of a lot of offices before they open a new branch. So yeah. they've kind of taken his uh, science and applied yeah. it to their business strategies. It's also the, the apparently the number of people that people send Christmas cards to. And, you know, I think that's probably older people and might not yeah. be applicable anymore but that's some research Robin did back in the 90s so it's it's there's an eerie amount and I've, I sat down and got a pencil and a piece of paper and tried to map out my 150 because they're kind of broken down into concentric circles of categories of intimacy so you get if I'm getting the maths correct you have your five best friends and this can include family by the way because mm -hmm. those are after all the friends sometimes if we're lucky that we're born with yeah so five really close friends then you go out to 10 then 35 than 100 and the further you get out in those categories the more tenuous your relationship with them so that 100 tends to be extended family members and acquaintances the kind of people like you might wish them a happy birthday on facebook yeah. but you don't really care about them year to year i suppose everyone will do that in their life at one point when they get married they'll yes. work out oh my god <laughs> yeah. so funny you could say that yeah. because so many people said to me when i was doing a chapter on friendship breakups and the mm -hmm. end of friendships that they didn't realize who they wanted in their life anymore yeah. until they sat
sat down to write the invitation list for their wedding. Yeah. And all of a sudden they were like, you know what? Susan doesn't belong here. I don't yeah. want to be friends with her anymore. And <laughs> like, who is Susan. Max? Haven't spoken to him in yeah. ages. You know, like you just kind of do this audit of your friendship group and realize who belongs there and who doesn't. Do you think that's something that's worth doing for everyone listening? Yeah. So in, in my book and since my book, it's definitely something I recommend. I think people should do a fairly regular audit of their social circles yeah. and work out who belongs there and who doesn't. And it does sound quite harsh. And I do also kind of advocate for people actually breaking up with their friends mm-hmm. and informing them that they no longer want to be friends, which sounds really hard yeah. and has you know, made people break out in a sweat thinking mm-hmm. about how confrontational that is. And actually since the book, I've had to do that with a friend of a former friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And it, it made me want to be physically ill having yeah. to send a message saying, I don't want to continue with this friendship, mm-hmm. but I think it's ultimately a greater kindness yeah. than just ghosting them or disappearing. Yeah. So yeah, I do recommend that people ask themselves, should I still be friends with these people? Because I think we all hold on to bad friends, toxic friends, Mm -hmm. friends who are no good for us out of fear of social rejection and being alone, out of complacency, out of laziness. And I think we should be surrounding ourselves with the people who lift us up and make us want to be the best versions of ourselves. And if you're not doing that, then why are you holding on to this friendship? So now that you're becoming mates with Dunbar, does that mean someone else has got to go? (laughs) (laughs) Kick someone else out? I think he's still, like, I don't know if he's even in my outer layer of friends yet. We're sort of more professional buddies, I would say. Yeah, how do you make friends with a friendship expert? It's like the (laughs) hardest thing in the world. Do you know what? His number one advice is alcohol. Loves a drink, the old Robin Dunbar, and I don't mean that in the in a derogatory way. Yeah. But if you ask him what the best way to bond with someone, particularly as a young person, is, he will say, "Go out and have a drink." Yeah. And he has all this great research about why it's so bonding to us. And you know, he has a very good point. So, yeah, perhaps I should get a wine with him, and then we will, you know, cross the border there into proper friendship. I think if you ask any person to name certainly of of our kind of age group to name a like a night or or a time where they were with friends that they were super happy like alcohol is going to be involved yeah like probably 80 yeah. percent of the time yeah, yeah yeah absolutely it does help i mean we don't call it a social lubricant for nothing exactly. it is, yeah it does do that i think one of the most interesting things for me was um finding out about toxic friends yeah which is not something that i'd ever come across before really interesting yeah yeah well what's a toxic friend well good question because i think we've become relatively more comfortable about talking about toxic people in the context of a romantic relationship breakdown and we can kind of identify when there is emotional abuse and i'm really pleased to see that conversation because i think it's so important Mm -hmm. and there are so many women in particular who are the victims of emotional abuse and coercive control i think we're less aware of the fact that that can very easily happen and does happen in a friendship scenario so i think it's difficult to define but um, when i spoke to psychiatrists and psychologists and stuff basically it boils down to A toxic friend is the sorts of signs of a toxic friend are someone who sort of alternates between great warmth and generosity and love and then harshness and coldness and hostility Mm -hmm. without much warning about which version of that person you're going to get. Yeah. Someone who has sort of who love bombs you with gestures of affection and really tries to charm you and almost seduce you in a friendship Mm -hmm. way, but then will withdraw and disappear and get angry when you can't make a particular date or you don't appreciate a particular gift enough. Someone who under 
undermines your confidence, someone who gaslights you, mm. someone who insults you, someone who picks on you for your weight, but does it in such a way that you think it's a joke and you're worried about whether you're taking it too personally yeah. and you start to doubt yourself. Basically someone who is slowly, or perhaps not even slowly, but chipping away at your sense of who you are and your sense of safety in this world. And I think, yeah, we don't talk about the fact that friends are just as capable of doing that as a romantic partner or in fact a boss or a family member. Mm-hmm. So I, it was really important to me to write about that because I just don't think, I think there's a little bit of shame involved if we have a friendship end on those terms. Like yeah. how did I not see it or, you know, how did I fall for this person? But also it's not serious enough to be a romantic relationship. It's just a friendship and I yeah. should have known better, all this sorts of self-talk. That I, I suppose there's a worry hard. as well. Like if you break up with that friend, how does that impact the rest of that friendship group? Yeah. Oh, because that's hard. Because hard. Really hard. Yeah. And I, I've spoken to people since writing the book because I write a column now for Metro Online that um, called Lean On Me, which pe- where people write in their friendship mm-hmm. problems and I solve them in a kind of agony art style thing. And I've had a few people write in about that. Like, how do you break up with yeah. one friend and then salvage the rest of the friendship group? And it is incredibly difficult. And to be honest, I don't really have a solution because it feels like a high school kind of d- dynamic, but it's perfectly possible that it happens in very adult relationships. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to work with. But I guess, I mean, fortunately, a lot of people have the sorts of friendship makeup where they have kind of like a couple of friends over here from work and a couple of friends over here yeah. from school and a couple of friends that they picked up accidentally along the way in all sorts of different ways. And I think it's actually sort of not that common for people anymore necessarily to have one set friendship group. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the TV show Friends lied to us in that way. <laughs> um, and there was actually, I think, like a 22-year-old I interviewed who said to me, like, where is my friends group? Like, yeah. where why am I not hanging out with the same people every day, drinking coffee before work inexplicably? Mm-hmm. So I think, thankfully, if you break up with someone, you should have other little pockets of friendships to lean on while mm-hmm. any fallout, you know, solves itself. Yeah. I don't, like living in London, I think, yeah, those pockets of friends are a lot more of a real thing. Mm. Whereas I think of people who are still back home, who are still friends of the same people from school, still go out with the same people every week. And for them, I imagine it's harder to get away from that. Because you grew up in a small town. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. My boyfriend grew up in a village in Sussex and Mm -hmm. they're all still really close with their high school friends. So it's entirely possible and I don't quite know. Although, no, to be fair, he fell out with one of his high school friends and they've just kind of, I guess maybe it's a slightly more manly thing, but they've kind of just like got on with it yeah. and you just don't really talk about it that much mm-hmm. and people just keep getting on with the people that they get on with yeah. and ignore any conflict which I guess is like slightly repressive but functional yeah because it's quite hard to notice when someone is doing those things to you I think because it can quite easily be camouflaged as banter oh yeah big time I had someone in my life a few years back who did this genius thing and looking back on it, it was so clever he used to call me stingy, like in front of people. Okay. Be like, oh, Dave never pays for anything. So I ended up paying for literally everything. Oh, no. Because I was so terrified yeah. of this reputation getting out that Dave's yeah, stingy. Yeah. And I only realized sort of after not hanging around with him anymore that and having a lot more money in my pocket, <laughs> <laughs> I was literally paying for everything because I was so oh, scared no. of, of him saying yeah. that I didn't ever pay for anything. 
Oh, God. Oh, it's hard. But, yeah, but you But it was don't. disguised as banter. Absolutely. It was disguised as, as far, oh, here he comes. Oh, he's got lots of money. He's hiding it away in his pocket. Like, And you're just like, oh, yeah, whatever. But yeah, actually, yeah. he's being a real dick. Yeah. I think it's a real problem because banter can be extremely sinister but disguised as humour and people get away with it. And, it, yeah. yeah, I find it really There's a, a fine line between banter and bullying, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. But I, then you're, when you were talking about male relationships, yeah. they're mostly glued together on, on taking the piss out of each other. Yeah, well, I was about to say that. I think yeah. it's a really interesting dynamic for male friendships because a lot of that is predicated on banter. And a lot of it, because I think someone said to me the other day that male friendship between two men is like a football, like that the men treat friendship as a football. They can kind of throw it around between each other. They don't really care about it breaking. It's a bit of a game. It's very banter-based. Yeah. It's fun-based. It's about loyalty and rules and stuff. And they don't really care about it whereas female friendship is a bit more like a china teacup and we feel as though we have to say the right thing and maintain the right thing and not break the cup and hold it very delicately and i quite like that analogy mm, but i, I think that. i prefer the teacup you want the teacup oh, yeah the tea. <laughs> well actually i mean i spoke to this researcher in the states called naobi way who's been talking to teenage boys about their friendships for 30 years and she thinks there's a crisis of intimacy among young men and she says that as children all boys and all girls crave that teacup they crave those delicate sensitive friendships and then for some reason when we get to sort of teenage years we start socially conditioning our boys to be stoic and to be dignified and to be masculine and manly above kind of sensitive and delicate and they believe that they don't they're not entitled to those sorts of friendships anymore so it becomes this more blokey exchange of banter rather than the kind of the teacup and it's mad to say this in 2019, but guys being terrified that they're going to be seen as gay because yeah, they have these that really close stayed rela- with me as well. Yeah, I spoke to this other researcher whose name I can't recall right now, but he wrote a book about male friendship, and every every time he talks about it, people come up to him after events and say, "How do I make friends without coming across as gay?" And he reckons about two thirds of the people he spoke to mentioned the fact that they were frightened of coming across as gay if they asked someone out for in a friendship. Capacity. And you're right, for this day and age, for that, for gayness to be such yeah. a derogatory thing and such a fear is so desperately sad. And I'm sure is inhibiting all sorts of people from getting closer to one another. Yeah. And we see it in popular culture. I mean, I write in the book about um, how often we ship men who are friends in popular culture. So like Sherlock and Dr. Watson, are they really great friends or are they lovers? Because yeah. we have to force a romantic narrative onto <laughs> two male friends because we hear a story about male friends and we don't believe that it's real because they must be lovers somehow. Yeah. It's this strange preoccupation with romantic love and romantic narratives that we don't quite give the time and attention to male friendship that it deserves. Yeah, I think you've watched far too much Friends yes. because you came up with the <laughs> you came up with the observation you observed the relationship between Monica and Chandler. Yeah. And how that was not a natural yeah, romance. Yeah, that is one of the more controversial things I've said in the book, apparently, according to people who've read it and heard me speak about it subsequently. Yeah, look, I don't I don't believe that Monica and Chandler should have ended up together. And it's less to do about the characters and more to do about the writers of the show mm-hmm. because they set us up with the premise that we've got six 
friends, three women, three men. And it's a show about friends. But ostensibly, by the last season, we almost ended up with three couples. Yeah. Because Rachel and Ross, I'll give them that because they were on again, off again. Yeah, and from they the start, since they were kids. To get together. Yeah. yeah. But Monica and Chandler happened, and I think it was a bit of a cowardly move. I think they kind of just wrote them together out of convenience and because mm-hmm. it was because people love to see people get together. And yeah. it was it would have been more revolutionary to just keep them as friends or better yet friends who shag and then move on from it. And then apparently and we Phoebe, weren't ready for that in the No, 90s, probably not. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Well, apparently Phoebe and Joey were meant to end up together as well, but then, oh, um, so what's his name? But then Paul Rudd was so good as Mike that they yeah. kept him on and ended up, and he ended up with Phoebe instead. But imagine if a show called friends didn't even have the courage to write all of its characters into friendships with one another that re- remain friendships for the mm. rest of the season. I mean, it would have been madness. So that's my main contention with the Monica Chandler thing. So because a, I think it was a, a bit of an easy not, thing. Uh, are friendships not sizzling enough? Well, I think that, I mean, like, I think that's the theory. Like, I'm very, I'm also very grinchy about the movie When Harry Met Sally because it was almost this perfect movie about a friendship between a man and a woman, which is a narrative we never, ever, ever get. And it even would have been great had they slept together and then worked out a way to move past it. That would have been a narrative I would have been on board with. But then you have the scene at the end where they end up together because even Nora Ephron, bless her for the rest of eternity for her genius, had to kind of resort to getting the man and the woman together because a friendship is seen as something that's not as sizzling yeah not as salacious not as worthy of a story in popular culture i don't know if you guys have read the elena ferrante elena ferrante books the neapolitan novels they're a series of italian novels and it's not her real name it's her someone told me about this literally two days ago really yeah yeah they're fantastic the first one is my brilliant friend and they're it's the, the central relationship throughout all of these books is between two women and it's a friendship and it's this really volatile dark intense friendship where they just can't let each other go and it's fascinating and it's salacious and it's juicy I think they've just turned this into a TV show they have they have I haven't seen it yet but they have and it's wonderful and it kind of got a lot of people in publishing and a lot of people who read books going oh wow you can sustain a narrative when it's just about friendship and of Mm. course there are other relationships both good and bad in the books but the central one that makes the whole plot go forward is just a female friendship and that is quite revolutionary we don't really get much of that in popular culture. That's something that we're seeing more and more. Recently, if you wanted to cast a female lead in a movie, they would say, well, we've done the studies and it shows that viewers do not relate to a female lead in this role. And then brave filmmakers just kept making the films. Yeah. And then it just started to happen. And then it just started to show, okay, we can cast kick-ass females yeah. in, in leads as supporting mains as as whatever and people will still still go to it i, I mean we just watched the favorite oh yeah <laughs> That's i mean brilliant. it's so good isn't it it's so good and per- perfect to have this like queer female-led film where everyone is nominated for an award and everything is like coated with a bit of sexual something or other <laughs> and it's this amazing rivalry between nasty royal associated women and it's been the biggest hit of awards season like it's huge and olivia coleman is the goddess and so is so are rachel and emma like it's just i love that movie and it and it's right i mean that's about a friendship well kind of a a sexually tinged friendship that goes wrong (laughs) i guess without spoiling things yeah yeah so let's just make amazing dramas about 
friendships and then it will start to become and then then it gives writers more options it's like the hollywood ending of the boy and the girl have to get together i wonder if that's so because people perceive that everyone has friends but not everyone has a this perfect relationship well i i think and correct me if i'm wrong kate but like i think it's more to do with the fact of that's the goal the the ultimate achievement in life is is romanticism and and a friendship's great but that's kind of throwaway and that's on the road to get to the the glory land which is a sexual loving relationship yeah i think we promote romantic love as the ultimate form of love Mm -hmm. and we tell particularly women that they're somehow incomplete unless they've nailed that achievement in life i think a lot of young people are told that unless they're married or in this usually heterosexual relationship mm-hmm. that's loving and they're both attractive and they belong in a movie, et cetera, et cetera, is the ultimate form or manifestation of love. And I have to, whenever I say this, I have to reassure my boyfriend that I do in fact have feelings for him, <laughs> but it is, it's not the ultimate form of love. There are so many other beautiful forms of love and friendship is one of them. And I, it's probably time we sort of paid respect to it in popular culture. Yeah. And that goes along with being in the friend zone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate the friend zone stuff because I think it sounds like a fairly innocuous term to just refer to someone that doesn't want to be in a sexual relationship with you. Mm -hmm. But what's the guy who wrote the game? Um, Uh, Neil Strauss. Yeah. Neil Strauss. I think he has kind of morphed that term into this hateful place that men get sent to like purgatory, you know, and like, it's the worst possible thing to have to be friends with a woman. And it's this great insult. And like, there's nothing worse than being in the friend zone and you've been sort of rejected and it's it's the worst possible thing that can happen to a manly man and that is so untrue it is a delight to be friends with a with a woman and it, they should be so lucky mm. and i think it really messes with the whole dynamic between men and women and gives us this untruth and that is that men and women can't be platonic friends. I mean, I looked into it and there's no evolutionary reason for men and women to be friends. So I just like to think of people who are friends between sexes as these beautiful evolutionary renegades. And mm. I think it can be a wonderful form of friendship. I have some really close male friends. I mean, several of whom I've accidentally kissed on a drunken night. <laughs> um, but we move past that and I can't imagine my life without them. Mm. And they bring to me something that my girlfriends don't. And they encourage me to be bolder and more confident in a kind of male way. And I think about my life in a different way when I'm with my male friends. And I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think it's really dangerous to suggest that friendship with a woman is like some kind of punishment for a man. Mm. Um, But again, it comes back into that kind of overestimation of the value of romantic love and sexual love for that matter. Really interesting. It's crazy that you're stepping into a space that didn't exist that there isn't a friendship expert yeah because there's a lot of things where you think of something and there's a few people that come to mind but friendship there's not that's a nice absolutely yeah it is and it's been really great for me because since the book's been out i think maybe if you look up friendship my book must come up fairly quickly because i get a lot of inquiries through my website for experts for articles that are being written or events that are being done because there is this shortage of people who've written about it so now i get to kind of be a spokesperson for friendship which is an absolute delight how do you recommend people find friends like make new ones 
Great question. It is a little bit of an elusive magic finding friends because I think we are, it's partly luck because you just meet someone and sort of like in a romantic relationship, you mm-hmm. have this chemistry and you think, you know what, I like this person and I want to keep them. And there's a chemistry there that I don't know how to tell you to find. But I think if you want to be strategic about it, and certainly I had to be when I moved to a new city and needed a new friendship yeah. group, I think basically you have to mine your own life for friendship opportunities because I think we let a lot of them go by. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I think there's a frightening statistic, which I may misquote, but I think 71% of people couldn't name a single neighbor on their street. And our neighbors are potentially like one of our most convenient sources yeah. of a, at least a sense of belonging, if mm-hmm. not great lifelong friendship. So things like that, like people who live around you, um, I think, you know, I joined a book club, an old lady book club, and instantly got eight new really good friends. Yeah. So sort of clubs and societies, they're kind of like a really good shortcut to friendship because you usually find someone you get along with and can at least socialize with, if not yeah. your sort of friendship soulmate. So joining my boyfriend does badminton and he makes friends through that. I've done the book club, but there are any number of other sorts of social clubs that you can join. I think also people are frightened about being their personal selves at work and being vulnerable and open. And I think they're the people we spend the most time with. And I think Mm -hmm. there are a lot of work friendships going unmade. So if you need new friends, I would start by looking at your colleagues and seeing if there's anyone you can invite out of work drinks or Mm -hmm. coffee and kind of push into friendship territory, which can be a really beautiful and convenient thing Mm -hmm. because having an ally in the office is really important. Yeah, I think also it's just about courage. So if you meet someone who you kind of get on with at your brother's girlfriend's friend's house party, like suggest that you exchange numbers and actually have a coffee date Mm. and just get that friendship going. Because I think a lot of us are frightened. You know, some of us, as we said, are frightened of coming across as gay or having the wrong intentions. Some of us are just worried about coming on too strong and being too keen. And keenness is never seen as a cool thing. So I think it's just about having the courage to ask people to be friends. I mean, one of my closest friends told me recently that the reason we're friends is because I said to her one day in a Facebook message, do you want to be my friend? (laughs) (laughs) So it can be as simple yeah. as that. So I think mining your your own life and your existing networks for people who might be friends is great. Outside of that, there's starting to be a lot more friendship apps on the market. Mm-hmm. Like Bum, I've done some work with Bumble. They've got a BFF mode, yeah. which I think is lovely because they kind of really do try and put women's interests at the center of their business. Yeah. So it feels like a safe space to make friends. And you know if someone's on the app that they want to have friends Mm -hmm. so there's less of a fear of rejection there are strangely there quite a few female-led friendship apps but not that many that i know for men Mm -hmm. so i think that could be a gap in the market that i'm sure someone will fill imminently Mm -hmm. um there's one called peanut which is for new mums which is incredible and there's one called hey vena there are a bunch of real kind of tech dude bros who are doing one called go green go i'm not sure how that's going but there's definitely a burgeoning market of friendship apps Mm -hmm. so that could be another way that we potentially do it and also just using social media more intelligently i made friends by just having some banter on twitter and following a lot of lady journalists in london having something to talk about and then being brave enough to slip into their dms and saying do you want to grab a wine sometime and i have lovely people who are still in my life because i did that so it's about courage and opportunism really 
to make new friends. I've met a lot of friends personally through Instagram. Yeah, great. Like through either groups that we've had a similar interest and we've talked and then I've met some people in real life from there and a lot of quite close friends now because I do photography. So I quite often message someone I find interesting mm-hmm. and say, like, I'd love to shoot. And then you've got a good Perfect. two hour situation with them where you get to know them really well. And Perfect. yeah, I've got some really, really good friends now from that. Yeah, it's entirely possible. The internet is not a bad place. Yeah. And I think from someone's social platform as well, you've got a good idea of what they're into. Mm. So it's a full, almost like a catalogue of people to go Absolutely. through. And yeah, if someone saw me and thought, oh, he might be interesting, let's go for a coffee or something, I'd happily go for a drink. Well, that's drink the thing, is I think people are so frightened of coming on as too keen mm. that they don't ask people out on friendship dates. Yeah. But actually, to be propositioned for a friendship date or a friendship in general is an absolute delight. People yeah. are never going to take that negatively, or they yeah. might, but they're an asshole and they don't belong in your life yeah, in that case. exactly. I was saying that so ex- exact thing to the day. Yeah. If someone says no, then they just weren't meant to be in your life. Yeah, and it's completely fine. Exactly. People should be, I think, more courageous with their friendship efforts. Thank you so much. You're so so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. It was like one of the more kind of thoughtful, interesting conversations I've had since the book. Some people are like, what is friendship? (laughs) Go. (laughs) So that was really nice. It was good. It was nice to chat. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya. See ya.